True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 39, Sali Lingefeldt, a 1940s serial killer. Before we get into today's episode, before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon subscribers, Nicole Robinson and Leonie Schumann, for signing up to support the show on Patreon. Thank you so much for your support, Nicole and Leonie. It is hugely appreciated. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave the links in the show notes. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media are all really great ways to help keep the show growing and improving. Today's episode is about a topic that fascinates most of us, serial killers. Although the term serial killer was only coined in the 1980s, people who kill multiple victims with an intrinsic motive have been active long before we had a name for them. While most sources name the world's first serial killer as being Herman Webster Mudgett, also known as H.H. Holmes, who claimed to have killed 27 people in the 1880s, anecdotal evidence suggests that serial killers were active as early as the 5th century AD, when a man called Du Chanatar was alleged to have sexually assaulted and murdered over 100 young boys before eventually being stabbed by his last victim. In South Africa, our recorded serial killers started quite a bit later than that, but I have no doubt that there are many who were active long before the first record. The serial killer I'm going to discuss today was not the first, but in reading Mickey Pistorius's book Strangers on the Street, he was certainly one of the strangest of those so-called pioneers. Let's get into episode 39, Sali Lingefeldt, a 1940s serial killer. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. There is very little information available about Sali Lingafalt's life before he became known to police. His surname is spelled differently in different sources, and his first name alternates between Sali and Hamal. What we do know about Lingefeldt is that by the time he was 23 years old, his mother had passed away and he was doing odd jobs and used a bicycle to get around. The bicycle had a very distinctive red wheel. Sali lived in and frequented the southern suburbs of Cape Town and he described his father as a good man. I guess this lack of information is down to a few different reasons. Although apartheid has a formal system 
had not yet officially been implemented in South Africa in 1940. Our society was already very much segregated by colour, and coloured men like Lingefeld were seen as second-class citizens. If I compare Lingefeld's crimes to the murder of Jacoba Schroeder, for instance, which happened in the same era, we know much more about her alleged killer or killers than we do about Sally. Of course, the time period also meant that we weren't trying to learn from killers like we do today to prevent future incidents. In the 1940s, although psychiatry was already a concrete science, we were far more concerned with just making sure that that particular offender never walked the streets again. And maybe that wasn't the worst outlook to have. South Africa still had the death penalty in 1940. It was only abolished in 1995. And judges were not averse to sentencing offenders to hang. On the 14th of September 1940, Evelyn Chalmers was standing in her home in Wellington Road, Weinberg, when a young man broke into her kitchen and attacked her. Evelyn started to scream and this seemed to frighten her assailant, who fled the house and rode away on a bicycle. Evelyn later told police that she would never forget the man's face, and she would later become a very important witness. She would also soon realise just how lucky she'd been that day. Nineteen days later, on the 3rd of October 1940, Ethel Marie saw her husband off at the train station as he left for work. As was her habit, she would then walk back to their home in Brockhurst Road, Lansdowne. Ethel would not make it home that day, though. At half past eight that morning, she would be found on a path that she regularly used as a shortcut home. She'd been beaten with a blunt object. Her hands had been bound with her stockings, and a scarf that didn't belong to her had been used to gag her, likely to stop her from screaming. Her underwear had been removed and was missing, as was her handbag, ring and her hat. The man that found Ethel called the police, and she was transported to Grotesque Hospital, where she died of her wounds without regaining consciousness. She had been struck at least 20 times, As police began to investigate the scene of the crime, the heavens opened up and it would rain for much of the day, thwarting the recovery of valuable evidence. Until an autopsy was conducted, it was believed that Ethel could have been the victim of a hit-and-run, as witnesses reported seeing a car stopped at the spot around 6am that morning. The nature of her injuries soon proved this to not be a viable lead, and police were on the hunt for a man who had sexually assaulted and beaten her to death. Again, exactly 19 days later, a domestic worker arrived for work at a dog boarding kennel in Prince George Drive, Weinberg, to find the owner, Dorothy Tarling, hacked to death in her dining room. It was determined that Dorothy had been attacked between 10 and 11 p.m. the previous night. Dorothy was half-naked and her head had been covered with a pillow. Her skull had been crushed and she had approximately 20 different wounds to her body caused by a blunt object, 
From the evidence on the scene, it appeared that Dorothy had been reading the newspaper at the dining room table when she was attacked. The newspaper lay open, and half of her crushed spectacles lay on it, spattered with blood. This had presumably been the first blow to her head. She was then dragged to the couch where she was beaten again. Dorothy's handbag sat on the table, and although it had been rifled through, nothing appeared to have been taken. The kennels were full of dogs at the time, and police found it strange that neighbours did not report hearing the dogs barking around the time of the crime. It was then determined that the perpetrator had entered through the only window in the house that was obscured from the kennels. Dorothy's bedroom window, and the dogs had therefore not seen him. This point of entry made police believe that the killer must have been familiar with the property. Police were able to extract evidence from the scene in the form of a fingerprint, which did not belong to anyone who should have had access to the house. The similarity to the murder of Ethel Marie, in that there'd been a sexual assault, as well as a beating with a blunt object, did not escape police either. But they initially continued to investigate both murders separately. On the 11th of November 1940, again, exactly 19 days after the murder of Dorothy Tarling, Evangeline Bird went outside the house where she rented a room in Weinberg. It was 10am in the morning, and she was accepting a parcel from a delivery man called Ahmad Rawut. Evangeline lived in a house owned by Mr. and Mrs. Oswald Spollander. A little while after Angeline had gone outside, Mrs. Spollander went to the kitchen to get a glass of water. As she sipped on her water, she looked outside and noticed what looked like blood on the steps. One of Evangeline's shoes was also laying abandoned on the porch. Mrs. Spollander went to investigate, and following drag marks, discovered Evangeline in nearby bushes. She had been severely beaten, and her dress had been pulled up and her underwear removed. She died shortly afterward as a result of her head injuries, and a later autopsy would confirm that she had not been raped. The role of the delivery man, Ahmad Raoult, differs depending on which source you look at. Some sources say that he chased Evangeline's attackers on foot and lost him when the man had mounted a bicycle and sped away. Other sources say that Rawut had simply seen the man fleeing the scene. In Strangers on the Street, Mickey Pistorius writes that when Rawut had returned to the Spollander house later that day, he'd claimed to have seen the perpetrator chopping wood nearby. A neighbour had also seen the man chopping wood and said that he had blood on his hands. With the third murder in a relatively small geographical area, and the victim type and method of attack being the same, police now acknowledged that they were likely looking for the same perpetrator in all three crimes. Thanks to Rawut and the neighbour, Police now had a description of the perpetrator for the first time, and an enormous search ensued for the man and his bicycle. This would likely have been one of the biggest manhunts in the past few years in that area, 
and it's reported that hundreds of people were interrogated, with an unnamed university student even narrowly escaping false accusations and being charged. We now know that intense police investigation and activity does little to deter serial killers. If anything, they'll increase their activity to prove their prowess. Sometimes they'll simply move their hunting grounds to an area that has less police surveillance. And that is exactly what this perpetrator did. The cooling-off period between the murder of Evangeline Bird and the next murder was reduced as the killer began to escalate. And just 14 days after Evangelina died, he struck again, this time in Rondebosch, just six kilometres from Weinberg. On the 25th of November 1940, Mary Hoots left her home to visit a friend around 9am. Her friend would later report that Mary had returned home about two hours later. A lodger, who was living in Mary's house, arrived at 7pm that evening and found the upper part of the two-section front door open. Finding this strange, the lodger called inside for Mary, and when he got no response, he entered the house. In the kitchen, he found a pot of water boiling away on the stove. In his room, the window had been broken, and when he proceeded to Mary's bedroom, he found her deceased on her bed. Mary's skull had been crushed, and the pathologists would later count at least 20 wounds to her body, including a gash on her neck. She'd also been sexually assaulted. Police found fingerprints in Mary's room, as well as in the lodger's room, they also found bicycle tracks outside the broken window. In probably one of the first examples of a task force of sorts being formed in a serial murder investigation, the head of Pretoria's detective unit was sent to Cape Town to head up the investigation. With the description of the bicycle, detectives visited every bicycle shop in the area to see if they could identify the owner. The description of the suspect was vague and could really have fit a huge number of people. So police involved the media, and in what was also possibly a first for an investigation of this nature, they fed the public false information with the intent of catching the killer. Police announced that they had recovered the left thumbprint of a perpetrator from one of the scenes. In reality police actually had the right thumbprint of the killer. The entire area was up in arms at the vicious killings, and a private citizen put up a reward of 1,000 rand for the arrest of the murderer. The precise number of days between most of the crimes had also not escaped investigators, and when the 19th day arrived after the murder of Mary Hoot, they held their breath for news of another victim. None came, though. Instead, reports started to filter in about a young man who was exposing himself to women in Plumstead. The man was on a bicycle. In Weinberg, a woman was accosted and had her underwear pulled down by a passing man. She fought back and escaped from him, 
in the third instance, also in Weinberg, a young woman was walking home when a man on a bicycle passed her and grabbed her by the neck. She broke free and ran home, with the man chasing her most of the way before disappearing. When she ventured out of her home the next day, she saw her assailant again and called the police, but he disappeared by the time they arrived. A few days later, the victim spotted the man for a third time, and she very cleverly waved down a passing delivery man and asked him to follow the assailant to find out where he lived. The delivery man later reported to police that he'd lost track of the man in the chase, but had recognised him as someone who regularly hung out at a local cinema. Police staked out the cinema and arrested 20-year-old Sally Lingerfeld shortly afterward. Initially, Sally was charged just with the indecent assaults of the three women that had happened in the previous few days. A ring that Sally was wearing seemed to match the description of one taken from Ethel Marie, the first murder victim. When the home that Sally shared with his father in Weinberg was searched, Ethel's hat was also found, and a bicycle matching the description that had been circulated was found underneath Sally's bed. The strangest part of all was that Sally Lingerfeld had chopped off the top of his left thumb. After hearing the police had found a left thumbprint as evidence, he decided to remove the possibility that he could be linked to the crimes, quite literally. Unfortunately for him, the police actually had a right thumbprint, and his remaining thumb matched it perfectly. Interestingly, when Sali was placed in a lineup, only Evelyn Chalmers, his first surviving victim, could actually identify him. Neither Rawut nor the other witnesses were able to point him out. Sali eventually confessed to the crimes. He admitted to having chopped off his own thumb with an axe. He'd used a piece of metal piping to beat his victims, and in some of the murders, he had progressed to using the same axe he'd used to dismember his thumb. This accounted for the gash on Mary Hood's throat, and it is believed that it was an attempt to decapitate her. Sally then made an even stranger move. He refused a defence attorney for his trial, saying that he didn't mind going to prison, as it would be better than the life he had on the outside. At one point, Sali indicated that he'd committed the murders on the order of his boss. He did not want to divulge who this boss was, but Mickey Pistorius would later say that she believes this was his way of describing his urge to kill. Psychiatrists were tasked with assessing Sali in order to determine whether he could be held accountable for his crimes from a mental health perspective. They found this almost impossible, though, as the man simply would not cooperate with them. He would only respond to their questions with a request to be hung. Sali Lingerfeld was eventually found fit to stand trial. He seemed to revel in the attention that he got and showed no remorse for his crimes. 
Due to Sali's refusal to cooperate with proceedings, the judge decided to enter a not guilty plea on his behalf and tasked the state with proving his guilt. This, of course, would not be particularly difficult, as he'd given a full confession, produced all of his weapons, his thumbprint matched, and he was found in possession of some of the victim's belongings. The judge, though, was seriously concerned that Sali was in fact mentally disturbed and driven by a sexual perversion. As evidence of this, he said that all of the victim's hands had been bound, even though the woman had already been unconscious. Now this judge is not too far off, and actually quite wise for his time. What he's describing is called a paraphilia, and even Mickey Pistorius agrees that this bondage was very likely an important factor in Sali's crimes. What we know now, though, is that sexual paraphilias do not equate to mental illness. Although they are very strong urges and linked to sexual pleasure, they do not make people kill. The judge was eventually dissuaded from sending Sali to a mental health facility for the rest of his life, and instead, when he was found guilty in 1941 of four counts of murder, Sali Lingefeld was sentenced to death. The execution by hanging was carried out in 1942. And just to round off his strange reputation, Sali is alleged to have walked to the gallows with a big smile on his face and a spring in his step. It's certainly not uncommon for serial killers to display paraphilias. A paraphilia is an umbrella term for anything, action or item upon which the paraphilic sexual arousal depends. While paraphilias are usually confirmed or entrenched in childhood, when a child starts to link sexual arousal with whatever their particular paraphilia may be, there's growing evidence to suggest that some people could be predisposed to paraphilias, depending on how much estrogen is in the mother's body while they're in the womb. We've seen many serial killers with a bondage paraphilia, and the victims are also tied in very specific ways that match up with the killer's fantasy. The manner of bondage may change slightly as the fantasy develops, and the killer finds new methods that excite them more. We don't know what occurred in Sali Lingefeld's life before he was captured, besides the sudden death of his mother. Perhaps that was enough to set off whatever time bomb was ticking in his head. As I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, Sali was not the first serial killer South Africa had seen. The first, in fact, has never been caught. The killer in question operated within the Milnerton area of Cape Town between 1934 and 1937. Three victims were linked to the same modus operandi, even with early investigative techniques. But the perpetrator either died or moved on to another area, because he was never found, and the cases remain unsolved to this day. We of course cannot forget Daisy DeMalka, who was executed in 1932, although as she was only convicted of one crime, it's up for debate whether we can call her a serial killer or not. If we acknowledge the trail of death that followed her, 
she would, in fact, be the first operational and convicted serial killer in South African history. Following on from the Milnerton murders came Sali Lingerfeld's criminal predecessor in serial crimes, a man called Cornelius Berger, who killed in Johannesburg between 1936 and 1937. Berger alleged that he contracted an STD from a sex worker, and so in 1936, as his mind became overwhelmed by his disease, he embarked on a killing spree of sex workers to exact revenge. Interestingly, this investigation involved each sex worker in the area being assigned a police escort who would watch over them from a distance and ensure that each one arrived home safely while the killer was on the loose. Berger, who had killed four women by that point, managed to attack and almost kill a fifth, even with her police escort on watch. This surviving victim would be his downfall, and he was identified and arrested soon after. Berger's STD had affected his mental health to such a degree at that point that he was found unfit to stand trial, and instead was sentenced to spend the rest of his life in a mental health facility. He died soon after. After the execution of Sali Lingerfeld, it would be another 10 years before the scourge of serial murder would darken the South African landscape again. Elifasi Msomi would start killing in 1953, and he would take serial murder to another level. His case will have to be covered in an episode of its own, though. One thing I found interesting about all of these older serial murder cases is that none of the killers were given monikers in the way that they are today. I think that boils down to the press's involvement, as they're often the ones that invent these monikers and almost give these people notoriety. As with almost every single serial killer case, everyone knows the name of the perpetrator, but most people don't know a single name of a victim. Think I'm wrong? Name one of Ted Bundy's victims. If you can, you're in a rare percentage, because I can't. So as I always do with serial killer cases, let's do a little bit to shift that narrative and end off this episode with the names of the victims who died so horrifically and painfully at the hands of Sally Lingerfeld. Ethel Marie, Dorothy Tarling, Evangeline Bird, and Mary Hoot, as well as all the women who were sexually attacked by this man. You are remembered. Thank you for listening to episode 39, Sally Lingerfeld, a 1940s serial killer. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the app you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. I'll be back next Friday with another episode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon. 